Welcome to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staber, a show where we bring you three different stories about science, technology, and the future of our environment. Today, we're starting with social media accounts run by the parents of minor children and a New York Times investigation into who is following them. I'm so glad for these new moms pimping their daughters out. Literally just refresh your Instagram Explore page. There's fresh preteens. As long as this stuff legally exists, I just enjoy it. That's a reporter reading a quote from an actual man who follows the Instagram accounts of underage girls. It was uncovered as part of their investigation into the proliferation of preteen influencer accounts run by their mothers and followed by men who are often sexually attracted to children. Investigative reporter Jennifer Valentino DeVries co-wrote the article, and she joins us now. Welcome to All Sides. Hi, thanks for having me. As the mother of, sorry, my mic just twisted around funny, I apologize, but um, as the mother of two young girls, this was one of the most stomach-turning articles I have read in quite a while. The comments on the images posted by girls as young as five or six were just sickening. And my first instinct as a parent was to shout, delete the account. But the moms you interviewed said it was more complicated than that. Can you kind of explain why they continue to share image of, images of these when they get these kinds of comments? Yeah. Um, you know, this was also a big question that I had during the course of this reporting. And I think, you know, it's important to note that um, not all of the accounts we looked at had or allowed these types of comments. There were a lot of moms of kids who were in, you know, competitive dance and cheerleading, and they want to be kind of micro influencers and they have these accounts and they do attract men, but the moms spend the moms spend a lot of time blocking these men. And that, that's a, you know, significant portion of what we're looking at. Um, the ones who leave the comments up um, are often, you know, they would tell us that they thought this was really important for their child um, to get ahead in the modeling world. They left comments up because, um, if they took down too many comments, they felt that the algorithm punished them and didn't, um, you know, allow them to gain as many followers. Um, and I think ultimately, some of them felt like they weren't doing anything wrong because these um, accounts are not illegal. You know, they're kids in... Um, clothing that you might see at a dance competition um, and that they didn't want to give in to the either the men who were making these disgusting comments or um, people who had been telling them that this was a terrible idea and they should take these comments down. I think they really became invested or take the accounts down. Um, I think they really became invested in um, keep keeping these accounts up and feeling that they had a right to do so. And I want to kind of describe the content of these accounts because it's not just posting a photo of your kids at the swimming pool. These are very often right. staged images, often in gifted attire and 
uh, a lot of times the the girls are wearing a lot of makeup. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think <clears throat> so. These are images that are sort of what you might expect to see if you imagine an adult who's an influencer and is um, uh, a representative for a certain brand of dancewear or sportswear, like sports bras, um, biking shorts, that kind of thing, um, or bathing suits. Um, So you sort of imagine what that might look like on an adult influencer, that style, um, and then translate it to children, which I think is um, tough to imagine in some respects, but that's the best I can do. I, you know, it's an, I know this is a, a, um, audio program, but, um, you know, it's a very, you sort of have to see it to fully understand it. And unfortunately, you know, we weren't going to show any of these images either because we don't want to, um, present that to the public, but, um, you know, I, yeah, I wanted to ask about that because <laughs> when it, with the online article, which I definitely recommend everybody go and read, um, instead of showing these images that are posted to Instagram, you describe them and you'll have things like a nine-year-old girl in a golden bikini lounging on a tile, towel. Uh, can you walk us through the editorial process there and why you decided to describe them rather than show them? Sure. Um, you know, we just we're not saying that these images are pornographic or completely inappropriate or anything like that but um we could see on instagram that these sorts of images um even though the child was closed were clearly attracting um men who were drawn to young girls and we didn't want to contribute to that um in at the New York Times. Um, We also learned in reporting this that um, context matters a lot um, for these photos. So something that might seem seem completely benign if you are um, seeing a bunch of children dressed a certain way at a gymnastics meet or a swim meet um, or at the beach, uh, when you post that on the internet, that context, that appropriateness kind of flattens out, uh, disappears. And, um, you know, people can look at it with whatever context they have in their mind, including sexualized context. And so we didn't want to take these images further out of um, their context and then put them into an article about um, pedophiles who were stalking girls online. So those were a couple of the considerations that, that we made. And these young girls, like you said, they're often looking to become models, further their dance careers, maybe even become adult influencers, get sponsorships and payments for posts. And I'm not about to say that that's the wrong life goal to have, but the comments on the posts are really what, for lack of a better word, it's what gives me the ick. Um, You report comments like, you know, fire emojis and perfect bikini body and like, take Mm -hmm. that bikini off. And Look, if an adult male walked up to my daughter at a swimming pool and said something like that, there is a better than good chance that I would clock them upside the head. Like, there's no world in which, like, you'd probably get the authorities involved in that situation. And yet Facebook, Instagram, Meta, like, they say it doesn't violate their terms of service. 
Right. Um, yeah. So the terms of service violations or lack thereof um, were another big part of the story. And again, so the the parents, you know, really vary from the the parents who are allowing those comments to stay up um, for whatever reason. That to be honest, I don't quite understand. And others who will allow a comment that they say is just complimentary, like "you're beautiful." or a heart emoji or heart eyes emoji to stay up because, you know, they can't really prove that that's a pedophile. You know, I, that is not, look, my personal opinion is I wouldn't allow something like that either. But there are also parents who really, you know, don't allow any comments and say they spend, you know, a lot of time blocking um, men from following the account and will report, um, you know, pictures that are extremely explicit that get sent to these girls accounts um, or people who proposition the children for sex over um, you know the messaging part of the platform and um, just over and over again we heard that these uh, did not run afoul of um, Meta's community guidelines and you know what we've learned is that Meta um, uses artificial intelligence or um, automated systems for a lot of these because they're so overwhelmed um, with the number of reports they're getting. And, you know, a lot of times that just does not, um, there's not a finding that it uh, is running afoul of the guidelines. And so the offending accounts stay up. These girls' parents are also taking advantage of a feature on Instagram that lets influencers earn more money off their accounts by offering exclusive content to subscribers. Mm -hmm. uh, for those who aren't familiar with this program, how does it work? So um, if your account is large enough, you can turn on um, something that's called subscriptions um, on Instagram. And that means that you offer your um followers the opportunity to pay a monthly fee um you know we saw from 99 cents we saw all the way up to there was one account that was charging 20 dollars a month um and you know <clears throat> people who subscribe get additional um photos in a special subscriber section they might have the opportunity to get um special live broadcasts or chats um with the owner of the account. And so in this case, um, the child or their, and or their parents. Um, and, you know, this is a, a feature that Instagram rolled out in 2022. And a number of the larger accounts that really are, they have a lot of male followers have these subscriptions enabled. Now that doesn't mean that the extra photos are, you know, inappropriate illegal. right right yeah. right, right. I, I think a lot of times it's just more of the same so if you have an account that's posting a lot of bikinis they're posting bikini photos in there and if it, you know um it's it's more of the same but they're getting money from men who want to in some respects support this type of content and also develop sometimes in their minds kind of an ownership of, of these children or a perceived relationship with them. Um, we also found, you know, there are other platforms and there have been for a few years where there's smaller businesses where people can go offline. There was one we looked at called Brand Army um, where it's kind of like a supercharged version of these subscriptions. Um, and there, 
there were a handful of children's parent-run accounts that were making six figures per year on these types of, you know, exclusive um, photo deals. Can I ask what the parents say? Because, like, in some cases you can purchase, like, these exclusive accounts get, like, videos from or personalized messages or personalized videos or Mm -hmm. interaction with the account. And, like, I'm sorry. I just... I cannot imagine allowing my almost nine-year-old to FaceTime or to talk with an adult male she doesn't know. Um, so, you know, in reporting on things like this, I think I really try to keep an open mind and let people tell us, you know, what their um, reasoning is and what their, their thoughts are and their experiences. Um I'll say a lot of the parents who are quoted in the article, the the majority of them did not do something that was quite, you know, at that line, though. (laughs) There are also a lot of parents who didn't respond to us. (laughs) Um, So but the what I have heard um, in the course of this reporting is, you know, that their child wants to be a bikini model. And um, there's a lot of reliance also on the idea that nothing they are doing is wrong as in it's not illegal you know that there were parents who told us they'd been looked at by the fbi before and child protective services and nobody had ever found anything wrong so they felt secure in themselves that nothing was wrong um and uh you know their daughter wanted to be a model and they thought this was a good way to go about doing it You also talked to uh, one of the children themselves who I believe she's 17 or 18 now. So she was on the cusp of adulthood and she had had this mom run account and now it's her account. And she talked about her future as being earning money from an OnlyFans account. And I sort of wonder, you know, what do you developmental like child developmental experts and psychologists sort of say about like I don't know, making a lot of money when you're 10 off selling bikini pics. Right. Um, so that one was that we talked to the mother in that account. We okay. did not talk to the the child. Um, but child psychologists, we, we spoke with a few, a couple of them. Um, and, you know, they raised a lot of concerns about the idea that um, that children in these situations would grow up thinking that their value was in um, responding to the demands, to very particular demands by adults and um, especially demands from adult men that they would grow to see that as their, as their value, as intrinsic to, you know, what they're providing to the world and that this could be very damaging. Um, And especially, you know, in terms of these direct interactions with adult males, um, you know, that that was especially problematic. Um, And even at, you know, 17, I think um, their decision-making capability is not... um, really advanced enough um, to necessarily handle that. And I think this comes into play, like there are a lot of parents who said, you know, my kid loves this. They love dressing up. They think this is fun. There's nothing to be like, this is just a normal outfit for them. 
Um, they're, we're at the beach at the t all the time. They love taking pictures. They love seeing that they're on the internet and it's really fun for them. But I think it comes back, the psychologists were telling us, it comes back to this idea that of course it's fun for them. They love getting free products. Like, yes, it sounds like it would be super fun if you're a kid and you also have no ability to have a concept of what is on the other side of the internet and you have no concept of the permanence of images on the internet like there's no way that as a child even an old you know even like a 14 year old you can really understand like how long these things stick around and speaking of the other side of the internet um i wanted to quickly touch on the telegram group so that's another social media app for those who don't know and you gained access to this group where a lot of the men who are making these sort of borderline creepy comments uh, where they congregate and where they mm -hmm. they share uh, images and influencers. And uh, I guess, what did you find in the Telegram group that you can um, say on air? Yeah. And some, well, yeah. Um, so some of them are borderline creepy, but some of them are really outright creepy. Let's just be so in the Telegram groups, you know, they're freer with um, their actual intentions and, you know, really um, feel freer to talk, to fantasize about these girls and, um, you know, it is very unpleasant um, and... Definitely I the think, dark side of the internet. Right. I think it makes clear that, you know, there are a number of men who might make comments that, as you said, are borderline creepy. You know, they're just saying like, happy Friday or something um, when they're on Instagram. And then they say much um, more disturbing things in other forums. Um, and I think though, what was striking to me is how these men really view what is allowed on Instagram as justification for their darker sort of fantasies. So the idea being that if these kinds of accounts are allowed on Instagram, um, well, gosh, everybody is fine with this. Everybody understands that, um, you know, it's okay to sexualize young girls and, everyone seems to be fine with it. So really like what I'm doing is only a little bit worse than that and they can justify their actions. They also talked about how, and this was something we saw too in our reporting because you know, we would use test accounts and follow some of these um, in order to kind of map out this network, follow some of these um, parent run accounts and the algorithm just starts showing you more of the same. Like, um, and so they, use that as a justification too and are very excited about it that you know even if they only find a couple you know they start out finding a few children that they're attracted to and then the algorithm seems to say like oh you're attracted to scantily clad children here here have some more and they really like that which i find i don't think you should be doing things that um you know pedophiles are liking maybe that's it we shouldn't be making yeah. it easy for them. No, exactly. That was Jennifer Valentino DeVries, a investigative reporter for The New York Times. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, we're talking about light pollution and its effect on biodiversity. 
That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staber a show where we bring you different stories about science, technology, and the future of our environment. The night sky is getting brighter, 9.6% brighter to be specific. Outdoor lights, street lamps, and the rise of suburbia have all made stargazing a thing of our past, or that thing you do when you go on camping trips in the middle of nowhere. Astronomer Diana Turncheck studies the impact of light pollution. She's a lecturer in the physics department at Carnegie Mellon, and she joins us now to talk about it. Welcome to All Sides. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So as an astronomer, I have to assume that the inability to view the night sky directly impacts your work. Can you kind of talk about what artificial light has done for the people who stargaze for a living? I think of us as canaries in the coal mine. It's the astronomers who first noticed this was a problem. It makes the very deep sky objects, galaxies and quasars, so much more difficult to see when there's artificial light in the sky. Uh, Cities usually have a, a sky glow problem. The light that bounces up from all the reflected street lights and windows and signs and car headlights make a dome over the city. Used to be that astronomers and observatories were in cities, but they had to move. (laughs) So that's our, that's our shift was the first indication. Yeah. um, In preparing for this episode, I understand that the big telescopes that are really trying to see out into the galaxy, we're now building them in increasingly remote locations. We're essentially looking for a mountaintop in the middle of nowhere to construct these uh, these uh, observatories. Right, yes, high and dry is what we look for. So a lot of the atmospheres below us from the high mountaintops, but also artificial light. The, the problem we're finding is if you go to remote locations, you no longer have complete control of whether the local government understands your problem. So uh, the Chilean government is putting in brightly lit way stations on turnpikes interchanges near the best observatories in the world. So, I also want to talk about light pollution and how it impacts animals, because we all have circadian rhythms. Those are those uh, internal clocks, right, on when to get up and when to go to sleep. And what does artificial light do to animals? Everything on our planet evolved with this 24-hour cycle. Daylight, nighttime, 
day is dark and bright and night is supposed to be dark. That's how we all evolved. And changing it has not left the the plants and animals time to make adjustments. Um, the nights are a thousand, five thousand times brighter than they were in a lot of locations now. And I just, I can't even imagine if you made the day 5,000 times brighter, then people would notice. <laughs> but at night, they're just like, oh, I can see better. <laughs> but oh my goodness, it really changes things. It changes um, predator-prey relations because like a little mouse in its underground hut doesn't want to come up because it knows it's going to get seen and eaten. So it doesn't get the nourishment it needs, but also the owls and the coyotes don't get the nourishment they need. And so those relations change, but it turns out that every single animal or plant that we've studied has some effect uh, by because of light pollution. Sometimes it's actually a little on the positive side, um, birds that want to swoop in and catch the bugs that are under a streetlight. But mostly it's negative. Yeah. Frogs, for example, um, I guess are vulnerable to too much light because they don't croak when it's light outside and their croaking is what attracts their mates for reproducing. So <laughs> I guess, Emma, but that is like a serious concern, right? If they're not croaking and they're not mating and they're not reproducing, then they run the risk of becoming endangered. Right. I mean, fireflies, another perfect example just like that they mate because they make little teeny tiny sparks of light and if they don't get that connection then uh, some species of fireflies are down 90 percent from where they were oh my goodness yeah the other animal that i thought was fascinating in preparing for this episode and it's just really sad is sea turtles so the hatchlings in florida some of them They've become endangered because they're so attracted to the shimmering boardwalk lights that they hatch there and they get crushed. So it's completely changed the way they reproduce. Right. People have stepped up and tried really hard uh, block off beaches where the nesting turtles are and reducing the light pollution that comes from the windows up on the boardwalk, putting the lights lower, making them red. Uh, but it shouldn't have to be that way. <laughs> we shouldn't have to go out. Uh, people in cities every morning at 6 a.m., they go out and they find all the birds that have been killed by striking the windows. Um, where bird window collisions can kill up to a billion birds a year. Um, I just heard something yesterday. Uh, you, you heard about Flacco? Yes, um, the owl yeah. in New York City. Right, so it was already there was a bird safe building act on on the books <laughs> like uh, but this news release by senator holman siegel's office announced that the bill has been renamed feathered lives also count flacco <laughs> act <laughs> oh my uh, goodness yeah actually in 2021 you were instrumental in pushing for the first in the country dark sky lighting ordinance in pittsburgh what is uh sky friendly lighting and how do like what did the ordinance do right i i i'm a squeaky wheel <laughs> i just kept saying like we should deal with this we should do something 
so the the um, Department of Mobility and Infrastructure wrote the bill, and the city council passed it. Um, it says that on city property, only dark sky lighting should be used going forward. Every time there's a new building or we change major renovation, it's shielded lights, lower wattage, and lower color temperature. So uh, we're looking at 3,000 or under lights, but we're about to change out 40,000 or more street lights in the next, starting in this year, um, and it'll go over the next couple of years. And that will really change things around Pittsburgh. If all the street lights are shielded properly, that would be a huge bonus for people who like, like, you know, like beautiful stars. You know, during the electrification movement across the U.S., um, you know, more lighting was equated essentially with greater safety, visibility, uh, an advantage for businesses to bring in customers. Uh, you know, I've always had that idea, right, of that dark city street where, you know, the thriller novel or the horror novel starts off. And we we equate light with safety, though. H- how do you change that narrative? How do you convince a city, for example, that less light is better? People like you. <laughs> I was so grateful for this like uh, ability to talk about this. So we're talking about dark skies, not tar- dark ground, first of all. And that people just think we mean everything needs to be completely dark and scary. No, if you properly light things, you will avoid those harsh shadows where someone could actually, you know, a perpetrator <laughs> be hiding. You you light it properly. So you light steps and walkways and, and doorways, entrances. And a light does to us, it means celebration and success and something is alive. The city's awake and alive. Um, we can do that and have proper lighting that doesn't light up the sky and it doesn't affect birds and animals and plants. So people uplight trees, for instance. When you uplight a tree, what it does is it stresses the tree because it makes the tree think the day is longer and it should maybe leaf out already. Early, too early in the spring, it's, you know, all the leaves and buds get killed by a late frost or hangs on to the leaves too long in the fall, which also puts stressors and, and opens it up for, you know, uh, illness and disease. So uh, if people would stop saying that uh, this is all about skies. That's one thing, because I do like dark skies, but that's not really what it's about. It's about better lighting for safety without glare, because glare is really bad, especially for older people. It Your eyes adapt 25 to 200 times slower after you get hit by a bright light. So you don't want, you don't want glare. If people would only light correctly, properly, thoughtfully, we could save billions of dollars a year and that would reduce our climate impact because it would reduce our carbon footprint. So look, there's a lot of positives. It'll save you money not to light up the night. <laughs> it's healthier for people. What sort of changes could I make, say, to the outdoor lighting around my house that would like what kind of small changes could I make 
outside of convincing my city council to adopt a dark lighting plan. I like the convincing, you know, there are 926 municipalities in Ohio and nobody can go to every single one and talk about just what I'm about to say about how you do it, right? So you really need statewide legislation, just say in Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> if there's peer pressure from all sides, then... Um, I don't know about that, but so should I be yeah. looking for warmer, like, should I avoid LED lights outside my house and go for warmer, more traditional incandescent kinds of lights? No, there's a good reason why incandescents are banned in many countries now, because the 95% of their electricity goes out as heat instead mm -hmm. of light. So LEDs are fine. You just have to pick ones that are the the good ones, the amber colored ones. They give off a white light, but it's got this like warm, cozy tone to so it. So it's kind of like and candlelight. You're looking for candlelight it, vibes. Exactly. Yes. And shielding so the light goes where you want it to go. It doesn't go in your neighbor's window. That's called light trespass. So you don't want to bring it, it, the ire of the neighborhood <laughs> down on your head by lighting up their their yards. You're not doing them a favor. Some of them could be amateur astronomers. Just got a telescope, go out there, and where's your porch light? On their backyard. So you got to kind of be careful where you put the light. Also, if you use dimmers, timers, motion sensors, or just turn them off when you go to bed. Make a habit to just turn your outside lights off. You don't need them out there. If you're really scared, you want security lights, don't put up big spotlights that just shine everywhere put up something on a motion sensor so you know when something's out there that that's that's my advice <laughs> or go visit your local city council meeting mm. <laughs> yes that was diane turncheck an astronomer lecturer in the physics department at carnegie mellon university thank you so much for your time today thank you Really, really happy to talk to you. Coming up, we're talking about a see-through laptop screen. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staber. As we close out this hour, we're joined by Russell Hawley, the managing editor for commerce at CNET, who's going to talk about a see-through laptop and more. Welcome back to All Sides. Thank you. So let's start with this laptop because a few <laughs> weeks ago, we talked about a television with a see-through screen. And now Lenovo is out with a laptop with a clear screen that allows your web browser and applications to be overlaid on top of the world around you. And I got to say, this kind of feels like what Apple Vision's Pro headset is trying to accomplish. 
uh, in a way, they're not mutually exclusive concepts. Yeah, it's really just uh, how the application works out. You, we have seen in you know science fiction for as long as I can remember, but certainly in the last you know fifteen to twenty years, you know these sort of transparent displays that have you know images on them. Tony Stark has got a whole bunch of them flying around him. You know, there's there's all of these different you know examples of it going around, uh, and there are a lot of people who see that and go, man, it would be really cool if that was real. Um, but but you know every version of it that has existed so far has not been super great for a bunch of different reasons. They don't work well in you know bright daylight and and things like that. Um, Lenovo seems to think that they have cracked it uh, with with this new version of a laptop that when you lift the lid, you can see right through it. Another interesting design feature, or perhaps I should phrase it as a lack of design feature, is the keyboard because there isn't is one. This is actually a version of a, a keyboard that Lenovo has been working on for a couple of generations now. And uh, wildly enough, um, for folks like you and I, Anna, who like prefer to actually feel something under our fingers when we hit a button, there's actually a funny little overlay that you can set on top of it that gives you keys that you can actually type <laughs> on instead of the fully digital experience that is there. The reason that that, you know, it's basically like two screens when you look down at it, one is dark and one is clear. Uh, and the dark screen has, you know, a digital keyboard that'll pop up, but it also has a pen input and it allows you to draw over like the entirety of that bottom screen. So it has a bunch of different functions. But yeah, if you're not big on, you know, kind of typing directly on glass, they, they do actually have a little thing that sits on top that makes it easier for you. Are there any privacy issues with having a see-through screen? No, I can't imagine any problems with that whatsoever, especially if you're, you know, one of the dozen people a year that get caught watching adult content on a subway. Um, that kind of thing is not going to be a problem at all. Yeah, I mean, obviously, if you are on the other side of someone who has this screen, then you can see exactly what it is that they're working on just in reverse. Um, something that was not tested in this uh, while they were given these demos, but I thought would be particularly useful is if I'm giving a small presentation to a group of people and can like mirror the screen so that it flips around and I can show, you know, exactly what's going on. Um, and that's kind of the benefit here is that you can you can kind of look at the screen from either dir directive uh, direction and kind of, uh, you know, position yourself in such a way that you can see what's going on for a group of people. Um, as for, you know, privacy, I, I'm sure that a strong piece of construction paper would help you out quite a bit. <laughs> um, the reviews I read described the Lenovo laptop as a concept or a proof of concept. Can you explain what that means? Because I yeah. think it means you can't buy this. This is not something that's available to buy just yet, but this is something that Lenovo does at pretty much the start of every year. Is It, it releases this concept more or less to see what kind of feedback it gets from an audience. Uh, and if it's something that is overwhelmingly positive, then the it goes into you know production. There is a version of this laptop that does not have the fully transparent screen, but does have the you know kind of two window design. Um, that that was a you know a version of this a couple of years ago and now is something that you can absolutely go and purchase uh, as part of the the think book line that Lenovo has um, but this this transparent display laptop is something that if it receives you know the the kind of positive response that Lenovo thinks it will um, is likely something that we'll see for sale you know next year um, although this is a 17 inch laptop and has a lot of you know kind of experimental tech in it so I would not expect it to be anywhere. Uh, under like $3,000. I want to shift gears and talk about phones. So Barbie, this is really weird. So Barbie is partnering with a company called HMD. That's the company that made Nokia. And they are releasing a flip phone 
in July. I I have so many questions, but I guess the first is why a flip phone? The reason that it's a flip phone is it is the Barbie dream phone, which some folks uh, from from our childhood remember was an all pink phone that uh, usually had like a sticker on the screen part that was like a picture of a dog or, you know, Ken Mm. was calling her or something (laughs) like that. Um, HMD as a company has kind of a fascinating history because they have gotten very good over the last couple of years at acquiring brands uh, that have kind of a nostalgic value to them, but aren't necessarily in the mainstream. You mentioned Nokia. Um, there, there are a few others under its uh, under its brand mark. And so they, they've released these phones as though Nokia was still making phones today and they have the Nokia branding on them. And you wouldn't really know that, you know, there isn't a big Nokia building somewhere where these phones get designed, that HMD is the company responsible for it. And they're kind of striking while the iron's hot. Barbie is incredibly popular right now and will be incredibly popular as uh, you know, basically throughout this year. So the hope is that uh, by July, they'll be able to have this this sort of vintage bright pink phone uh, that will do all of the things that a smartphone does, but it'll still have, you know, kind of the physical buttons when you flip it open. Um, so not the same thing as like Samsung's flip phones uh, that are available today. Um, but yeah, everything that they have said so far suggests that if you had the little pink plastic Barbie dream phone, uh, from, you know, 30 years ago that it should look almost exactly like that. That's wild. I was kind of envisioning like a bright pink Motorola Razor for those who remember those from the mid 2000s. That's kind yep. of what I'm envisioning in terms of what it's going to look like. That was very much the the kind of vibe when those things were, you know, in boxes. Yeah. Also, just for the record, as somebody like I have tiny humans, tiny girl humans, and they're Barbie dream house came with a Barbie tablet and a Barbie smartphone. So they have moved on. They have moved on, but the dream phone very much fits in the, in the like nostalgia era uh, that the movie fits in. Um, And famously in the movie, not a lot of advanced tech going on in Barbie land. So, you know, still, still kind of fits that vibe. Yeah. And speaking of moving on, I want to move on to talk about the U S Supreme court. So they are hearing oral arguments in two cases that could essentially determine whether tech companies should be forced to carry content that they don't want to. Is that kind of a fair assessment? Sort of. Uh, you know, it, it is definitely the uh, the version of this that is uh, that is is being you know kind of washed out to to a bunch of folks right now. This essentially started um, you know three or four years ago, where there was a, a large series of accusations that uh, Twitter and uh, what is now Meta and and a few other social uh, networks were being accused. Um, I think even Gmail at one point um, of suppressing conservative voices. Um, now, the Gmail one turned out to be false really quickly because Gmail was very quickly able to point out that spam filters exist. And if you shove email at someone four times a day, that Gmail is going to automatically block it, regardless of what your political stance is. <laughs> um, but yeah, there, there was a lot of uh, accusations that conservative viewpoints were being suppressed um, and only conservative viewpoints were being suppressed. And, and uh, despite evidence to the contrary, uh, a lawsuit formed uh, and it has you know risen itself all the way to the Supreme Court where it is. Uh, the initial arguments are currently being listened to. Uh, and there's there's a really fascinating set of uh, you know dialogue pieces uh, in, in this conversation from yesterday. Um, 
A lot of folks uh, may remember Twitter being originally referred to as the digital town square, um, you know, where everyone can can come together and, and share opinions. And the funny thing about a town square is that it's never actually been that. It's never been a place where you can come and just say whatever it is you want without any consequences. That there, you know, there there is moderation in all forms. But Twitter is also a very private company and has its own rules that you have to follow in order to to play in that particular sandbox. And the arguments uh, that were being heard yesterday was was really about talking about uh, Twitter and and Facebook and all of these different platforms as though they should be uh, you know, regulated and moderated in the same way that the First Amendment applies to the way that government can can or cannot you know, censor speech. Um, and that seems to be, you know, kind of the, the thrust of the conversation was from yesterday was, is it this, you know, kind of Orwellian disaster that Twitter can come in and say, no, we don't actually want these things on our platform? Or is that just the First Amendment in action? Yeah, it's like I always with free speech arguments, I always like to remind folks that like freedom of speech doesn't mean freedom from consequences of that speech. And that sure, you can say whatever you want in the town square, but you can also be shunned by the people of that town for what you said in the square. That is exactly right. And it's also important to understand that like the, the context of the arguments that are being heard today are are very quickly going to be followed by a different Supreme Court case about whether the Biden administration had the right to uh, suggest that COVID disinformation should not be shared on social media platforms if the Biden administration had in fact overreached uh, by reaching out to, to these uh, companies and saying, hey, you know, ivermectin actually doesn't do these cool things. So maybe we should not, you know, treat that as the, exactly the same weight as some of the other things that are being said uh, around the the kind of healthcare debate. Um, so a lot of the the you know kind of challenges with both of these cases that are that are going to be you know kind of heard over the next couple of weeks um, is is whether or not it is appropriate for uh, the government to come in and say you have to follow these specific rules even though you're a private company uh, making these decisions and a big part of the the concern that brought up as as part of counter arguments is how broad some of these laws uh, would apply well beyond Twitter and Facebook and and things like that. Um, whether it is appropriate for Etsy uh, to to say no, you can't actually sell shirts that have uh, you know certain viewpoints on them, or or whether a comment left uh, on uh, Uber, uh, you know, about the way that someone behaved as a driver, uh, you know, didn't reach a, a certain viewpoint, um, that those could also be enveloped in this rule. And that uh, that seemed to to generate quite a bit of concern uh, regarding how, you know, how far that that information should be moderated and how that law should be applied. Yeah, it's a very complicated case. I will say that the state laws that are being challenged come from Florida and Texas. So that's where these laws originated and they kind of work their way up through the court system. Uh, but what gets me is I think we all sort of fundamentally understand. And in the first part of this hour, we talked about, um, you know, men who follow the accounts of underage girls for disturbing reasons. Let's put it that way. And we all sort of recognize that, like, somebody who is talking and sharing and trying to connect people who are pedophiles, like that probably Meta doesn't want that on their platform in any way. But it, I guess it gets murkier when you get into political opinion. Yeah, it definitely gets murkier when you get into political opinion, but it is it is very much in the same vein uh, as the social media accounts that do nothing but follow uh, the, the jet itineraries of billionaires. Um, you know, there there is a whole separate case right now about whether it should be um, appropriate for, you know, for that information to be shared publicly, despite it being very public information that's easy to access. 
Um, you know, all of this comes down to, you know, how these organizations choose to moderate themselves and whether the, the government uh, should be allowed to step in and make dictations for, for how that information is shared and viewed. Finally, I want to talk about robocalls. So spam calls are annoying, obviously. And tech companies have been trying to filter them out for years. But Microsoft has a new idea. So what is Azure Operator Call Protection? Yeah, so Azure Operator Call Protection is, uh, you know, instead of addressing this on your phone where you get, you know, kind of a pop-up, Google does this right now, where if you have an Android phone and a spam call comes in and it's on a registered spam list, then you get a thing that says, hey, we think this might be a spam call. Um, that doesn't work 100% of the time and, and you know, obviously only works on Android phones at the moment. So what Microsoft has in mind is uh, something that is more platform focused, where it can actually uh, listen to the call um, you know, in that that is before it reaches your phone, and if it follows a very specific pattern, uh, then flagging that as a robocall before it has reached your phone. Um, so anybody who has gotten one of these robocalls, especially the ones that sound extremely human for the first couple of seconds, knows that they follow like a like a pretty specific pattern. Like they they, they don't shake it up a whole lot, um, and a lot of times the replies can be uh, you know pretty easy to identify if you're familiar with this sort of thing. Um, and so Microsoft's plan is to, to basically listen uh, to those fraudulent callers and kind of build a database of these kind of language ticks and, and those sort of things and making helping uh, carriers make decisions on what is spam and what is not essentially before the call has reached you. That's wild. Like, and I know what you're exactly what you're talking about sometimes when you answer the phone and you can almost, I think they're getting better at it for sure, but there's almost that like stiffness in the voice or in the phrasing where you're like, I don't think that's a human. Yeah. Yeah. I, my very favorite one is, uh, is the way that it, uh, a lot of these callers will repeat. Uh, I promise I'm a real person, but it's always in that exact same. Like, <laughs> so like once you've heard it a second time, you're like, yeah, okay, nice try. Um, yeah. So like those kinds of things, the the goal is to to go and, and do this. There's a little bit of concern regarding the way that Microsoft has presented this in that uh, they very much say, hey, we're going to listen to a phone call, uh, a series of phone calls and make a decision on whether or not this thing is, is you know, kind of a real or a person that immediately suggests that Microsoft is going to be listening to all phone calls. And that's not exactly what's going on here. There, There is, you know, kind of a, a set of calls that come from uh, what are kind of corporately identified numbers and numbers that are registered with phone uh, operators as a business. And those are the ones that the carriers would allow Microsoft to listen to, not, you know, your sister calling you to tell you, you know, whatever the T is on, on the neighbors down the street. Um, very, very different things going on there. That was Russell Holly, Managing Editor for Commerce at CNET. Thank you as always. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this hour of All Sides on 89.7 NPR News.